I had to forgive the Crown for its apology before it apologised prior to the game. So for me that was a spiritual thing. That I couldn't go into that day waiting to hear the apology, see how I feel, receive it in my heart, decide whether I forgive or not. I did all of that before the game. I had to. For me. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora, no mai, haere mai, welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations with me, your host, Andy Dixon. It's a very special episode today as we prepare to remember the crown invasion of Parihaka on November the 5th, 1881. If you don't know the story of Parihaka, you may wish to pause the episode and follow the links in the show notes to read a little about what happened. But the short of it was that the Crown ordered troops to invade Parihaka in response to the people of Parihaka showing active, non-violent resistance to the confiscation of their lands. And the response of the people of Parihaka was still kindness and intentional non-violence. Today's guest, Puna Wano Bryant, is from Parihaka, and a couple of years ago she led the team who negotiated a Crown apology for the atrocities committed in its name. With a background in law and arts, Puna has been actively pursuing justice for Māori in a range of ways for many years. We talk about her understanding her identity as Māori, her passion for justice, Māori wards in local elections, and what it was like to negotiate with the Crown and receive an apology, and then what. It's a deeply moving corridor. This is episode 60 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Puna Wano Bryant. It's my privilege today to be having a kōrero with Puna Wano Bryant. Uh, Kia ora Puna, welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, Andy. Tēnā koe. And nō uh, Who are you? Where are you from? Tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, uh, tēnā koutou. Um, ko Tarunaki, te Ateawa, Ngāti Mutunga, Ngāti Mania Poto, Ngāti Awa, Oku Iwi. Uh, nō Tarunaki Ahau, uh, nō Parihaka Papakainga, me Mururau Patu. Uh, ai, uh, Ko ku um, pahake, ko mākere wharehoka, ni John Waretini Wano, no roto o Ngāti Awa, hakatāne, uh, te pāroa. Ai, uh, ko ahau tēnei tō, tō mānga i tēnei rā, te mihi atu ki a koutou katoa. Down to Earth Conversations. Nā koutou. You are involved in a, a heap of different things, um, some of which we'll touch on today. Um, but firstly, what's the mama life like for you? Oh, kia ending, yeah. It's um oh, it's added to the joy, that's for sure. And uh it's a humbling experience being a parent. Yeah. Uh and my husband Carlos, he uh, does the drop offs and the pickups, which I kinda envy. Um, but the arrangement we have is that I'm the, you know, nine to five and five to nine, we call it. Um and and, and, I, and I love that, um, that I can continue on with, with my mate um, and my community. 
and he does yeah he he does all the pickups and, and it's actually um, similar similar to what we're doing it um of for our girls Bex did all of that while I was working but um now we've swapped roles so nice um, I'm still working like with Bex we've got our own business but I do all the drop-offs and pickups for kindy and everything and it's great hey? run, run the girls to swimming and hip-hop and whatever oh else. wow I love so, it when I can you know I get the chance to I, I jump at it uh but every day at three o'clock while I'm you know um in my office or with my team I'm thinking oh he'll be picking yeah. her up and, yeah but you know it's it's um I wouldn't even call it a juggle because Carlos is dedicating to that mahi for us you know um it's just our shared commitment to our yeah. Um, to the life of Henry Maiora, our daughter, and um, yeah, and she's used to it. That you know, they get used to it. You know, when I come in the door at you know five thirty, she's just full of smiles and love, and I love that. It's probably the favourite part of my day. It's not waving her goodbye, but when I get home, and she's just so excited. Eh? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Now you fuck a papa Maori, but you also fuck a papa Pakiha. You've got a, a Maori mum and a Pakiha dad. Um, and I know I know a number yeah, of people, definitely. including our mutual friend Jay Ruka, actually, who who grew up with that same yeah. kind of scenario with a, a Maori parent and a Pakeha parent. Um, and like mm. for him, he grew up with little connection to to our Maori. Um, did you grow up with a strong mm-hmm. sense of your Maori identity, or is that something that came down the track? Mm, awesome part time. Uh, I'm fortunate, blessed to have a strong connection. Now, I'm born in Hawera. Uh, where all our whānau were living and working at, at the time and had a strong connection to my marae uh, and, um, you know, marae life, iwi hapu life and, and the hahi, the whakapono um, that my grandparents chose for us. And their parents was um, hahi katorika, the Catholic faith. And so we were immersed in what we would call the Māori Catholic movement, um, which is still very strong. So we got to learn a lot of our, you know, tikanga and through the through the um, Catholic Church. Um, all of the ministers were Pākehā uh, and uh, priests, uh, but they would deliver mass in Te Reo Māori. And, and the Te Reo wasn't the best, you know, when you look back and you're like, oh, there's a lot of mispronunciation going on. But nevertheless, it was an exposure to the importance of Te Reo. Uh, and, and those priests were very important to us. They they married us and baptised us and, you know, and buried us. So, um, and still do. Um, so that's a strong influence here for us. Uh, and then mum met who I call dad, um, not my birth father, and he was a kiwi fruit grower. So we moved from Taranaki to the Bay of Plenty um, in Tauranga Moana. And I did all of my schooling there, high schooling, before I went to university. So dad managed his pākehā, a papa, Steve Bryant, from the Manawatu fielding, and he um, managed um, orchards owned by Māori corporations. So he was Pākehā working for Māori, and um, so we were brought up on Papakainga and Tauranga, at Tamapahore and then in Matapihi. So he got to raise Māori children, my younger brother and sister and myself, um, and and to be um, employed by Māori and see the changes in Māori leadership over that time. And also Tamapahore, where we grew up, was a strong ratana uh, marae, uh, as many of them are in Tauranga Moana. So we got another um, level of exposure, exposure to whakapono Māori 
Maori-based, uh, faith-based movements. Did did uh, did the Ratana crew do the full like brass band pōhuri? Full regalia, loved it. I went to one of those uh, a few years ago now down here. Um, yeah. And like I'd been to a number of pōhuri um, with. Uh, or for a bunch of different things, but I'd never experienced anything like that. That's quite unique, eh? Yeah, it's really profound, you know. It speaks to our creativity, our musicality, our love for colours. You know, there's this perception that, you know, it's just red, black and white, but out come the purples and the blues and you name it. And, um, you know, for me as, as a Taranaki um, child raised in Tauranga, uh, my mother was a staunch Taranaki woman. And... And I was like, I want to be a ratana, and I want to be a nanahira, and I want to be in the band, and I want to be in the reo. And she's like, no, you are a Taranaki woman being raised in Tauranga. Never forget that. But it's not our faith. Um, it's not what we do. Our role here is to support, not lead. So, um, but then the Tomapahore whānau um, uh, encouraged me into leadership, which was from a young age, which was really interesting. Yeah, awesome. And so you've been involved now with um, pursuing justice for Māori for quite a while. At what point in your life did you decide that that was something you wanted to give your life to? Yeah, at a very young age. So mum told me from a very young age I was all about that. That identifying those things, um, contradictions in parents and right. in life in general, um, which was a mum was a very um, strong woman but very quiet spoken. So to have this child who pointed all of these things out, not just for me but for her, mum, no, don't let that person talk to you like that and, and so on. Or something at the supermarket, no, no, you, you don't get treated like that, mum. Um, she found really embarrassing because she wasn't the sort of person who would fight against those things, everyday things. Uh, and this is a statement I wrote down when I was 14. I always laugh. I'm like, oh, my gosh, look at you, Gil. Um, was that I will settle for nothing less than the complete liberation and respect for and of all things Māori, right? At 14? Uh, at 14. Wow. I wrote it down. And then there was the replica of the endeavour sailing around New Zealand at the time. And so I was up in arms about that, you know, as a symbol of oppression. <laughs> and Dad being, you know, parked and I was like, well, hang on, you know, that's that's a symbol of my identity. And if it didn't sail past these shores, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be your father. Uh, so just, you know, humble yourself as you, as you grow in your um, <laughs> righteousness. And it was good to have that mix of a strong mother who, like, I said, wouldn't stick out in front like I did, but she was very, very clear about um, what was right and wrong. And then Dad, who tempered it with humility, you know. I don't care if you have um, letters behind your name with degrees. I don't care what you do. It's it's how you are as a person um, that matters to me. So that's the, I guess, the teenage puna <laughs> that got me to that point. <laughs> that must have set you up really well for everything you've gone on to do that that you had that really strong sense of justice or injustice um and, and a desire for justice but you also had that that calm voice saying hang on think about it this way as well not saying 
no, you're wrong. Don't, you know, don't think that. But going, okay, just take in the full picture and now go and do your mahi. Um, yeah. That, yeah, what, I like that. What an amazing privilege. Yeah. Yeah, you can look at your own nose, can't you? Some people call it navel gazing or whatever you want. And, and I think with justice that, that you can get very um, linear in your thinking. Um, and there is a time to be linear because we have to be focused when it comes to issues of justice. You know, we can't be all over the place. But, but in terms of your own emotional maturity and spiritual maturity, you have to know the full picture. Yeah, it's really important. You did go on to get some letters after your name. Um, <laughs> you, you did a degree with law and arts. Yeah. You know, that's a fascinating double major. What Was there a specific plan for that, or did you just like both of them and go, oh, well, I'm here, let's do it? Bit of both. You know, we, we're young when we choose these things for ourselves. Eh? So young, choosing the pathway for our life. I mean, goodness, the, the gravity of that decision for young ones is too much. But yeah, so it was, it, it was a bit of both, to be honest. Oh, that's cool. Um, but also, uh, I wasn't a maths person, not a science person, definitely into the languages and the arts. But see, I did, um, so hence the, the Bachelor of Arts, uh, Law was the justice thing through and through. But the, in 95, um, after my seventh form, I came home to Taranaki to study the real. That was my first priority. And it was at the time when you could do an outpost degree first year of a Bachelor of Arts um, through Waikato University. So I was able to come home, learn the Taranaki Mita and Tikanga, uh, and then go back to Waikato University. Uh, the following year and pick up law and carry on with the BA. Um, and it's important, you know, just with te reo, the te reo journey, recognising the work of Ngā Tamatua, um, the important week we have next week to commemorate 50 years of, of the petition um, for te reo Māori, that, uh, you know, when you aren't brought up with it as a first language, which we weren't, you know, you have to dedicate um, yeah, your, your life to it, really, uh, and, and doing it in a piecemeal meal fashion is really difficult. And other friends of mine who did their first degree, um, you know, their, their career degree, and then were just finding it hard to put Leo in as a supporting subject. I said, oh, you've got to do it. You've got to immerse yourself. You've got to go for a full year, do what I did. And many of them actually went back and did it that way. And when you finished studying, did you was it straight into mahi for iwi and stuff, or did you have some time doing some other things first? Uh, so the first five years was in private practice, um, Māori, Māori um, issues law firms, um, Walters Williams, which is the the law firm of the now Supreme Court um, Sir uh, Justice Joe Williams, and. And I was under Lane Harvey, who is now um, one of the few Māori um, High Court judges who was sworn in last year, a descendant of Te Kōti. Um, and so in private practice for five years. And then I went to London for five and a half and worked in planning um, as a planning lawyer in London boroughs councils. And it was always connected to home. Actually, when I was in London, I took that as the opportunity to learn Waiata especially our songs of lament, um, you know, the long ones that take ages to learn. In London, I learned most of those because it was my time out, so to speak, but my, not my time off. And, 
and then came home and did consulting and came straight back to iwi um so no longer a practicing lawyer but i certainly saved the iwi some money yeah 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 true <laughs> yeah being able to um identify those legal issues before you go to someone with a clean slate and say help me is, is really important and so how long have you been based back in taranaki now uh, over 10 years now, yeah, and, 11 years. And what are the sorts of sorts of things you've got involved with over that time? Because um, you seem to yeah, be someone who's got your finger in a bunch of mm-hmm. pies. Oh, yeah. So just with the career pathway stuff, it was first Taranaki Iwi pre-settlement with the Crown, um, and then uh, Department of Conservation, while well, I worked on the Pariaka Reconciliation, uh, so I could focus. Um, I didn't want to work within Iwi, and work on the Pariaka reconciliation. I really needed a, um, yeah, to have one foot in something else. <laughs> um, while I did that, and two years at Department of Conservation as a partnerships ranger. Um, that didn't get out in the field, so ranger's pretty, yeah, not, not an accurate term. <laughs> yeah, right. um, yeah, my my boots didn't get dirty. Um, it was great to work with the Crown for the Crown. Really. Yeah, important exercise if you if you've got the um, fortitude for it, and then back to Taranaki Iwi for post settlement, so a new post settled Iwi, and then wanted to share myself more with Taranaki Farnui, so I'm now um, general manager um, of the shareholder environmental team at Parinini Ikiwaitotara. We are responsible for about twenty three thousand hectares of whenua. Most of it's wrapped up in reserves that we don't control but some of it we actively manage and provide um, benefits to our people. Awesome. One of the issues that you have been involved in a bit as well is continuing the conversation towards getting Taranaki Māori wards on council. Um, yeah. And I had the privilege last year of speaking to um, Matua Andrew Judd on the podcast cool. and, and hearing his story of, um, I guess his heartbreaking story in some ways, of trying unsuccessfully to um, to get the Māori wards, well, they they got a Māori ward and then they got it taken off them through um, petition and stuff, and you know, but also he faced a whole lot of vitriol and just animosity, um, getting spat in the face because of his support for Māori and for this idea of shared leadership and and having a Māori voice at the table. Um, I guess what for you, what what's your involvement been around it, and um, and what's the experience been like for you as a Maori in that space? Mm, and and um, acknowledge the work of Tangata Tiriti, um, like yourself and Anaru, <clears throat> and one just understanding the issues, two caring about them, um, three um, putting your hand to the plough is Tangata Tiriti in whatever way you can. Uh, and every little bit and every big bit is important um, just to acknowledge all of you so yeah I get to see Matua Anaru heaps it's really cool yeah and he's still you know uh, suffering the effects of being a tangata tiriti in that space because there's a different kind of abuse that occurs from the um, from the oppressor and the aggressor when uh, Pākehā stand up to these issues. It's not the same as, as the Māori experience, but it is nevertheless very, um, <clears throat> yeah, very harmful. Uh, my 
um, experience was it's the first time I had worked with Tangata Tiriti in a, in a linking arms kind of way. Um, and I did it deliberately because if you listen to my pathway previously, it's very insular. Even when I went to London, I was in the London Māori Club, I went everywhere with Māoris. I might go, go all the way to London to hang out with more Māori. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> but it's what we do and we love and it's and it's us. But I thought, right, with this Māori water shoe, which I am going to put my hand to the plough with, I want to sit in arms with Pākehā. One, allow them to help because you get a bit self-righteous with some of this justice stuff. You, you're like, no, only I can and only I should. Um, you're just used to it. You're just used to doing the hard work yourselves. And my eyes were opened, and it was the most beautiful experience that I've ever had in, in, the, in the quest for justice for Māori. I um, underestimated um, the ability of tangata tiriti to, I guess, um, you'd be a voice for Māori, actually, and in a different way to Andrew, um, the way that he did. Oh, we'll write that. No, we'll put that submission together. Puna, you just check it. And I'm like, oh, this is a bit weird. Um, okay. Honestly, the beauty that came out out of it was incredible in the learning. Uh, and and we, we continue on to, to battle on all fronts together. You know, we were successful um, in that the law was changed to get rid of those petitions. It was an incredible day. And... But I, and it was the first time that I had seen, apart from the treaty settlements, which are a form of legislative recognition for a grievance um, that doesn't go anywhere near, um, you know, far enough to um, remediate the grievance. We know that disproportionate to the gravity of the um, of the crime. That uh, I said, hey, it's awesome that we've won, but actually this isn't the norm because I've never been involved in, in a short amount of time, which was about six months, um, from raising the issue to fighting the issue to going through the legislative process to the law being scrapped. Um, it's, it's not a, a regular occurrence. In fact, you go into these things battling, preparing not to win, but that's not why you go into battle. And that's why protest and occupation are still a part of the kete of tools um, of resistance um, because we go into these legislative processes or whatever it is, courts, um, not expecting to win. Yeah. Oh, man, there's so many rabbit holes I'd love to chase down from all of that good at all. But um, <laughs> before we, we run out of time, I do want to talk about parihaka. Um of course. And that's a, something that, as you mentioned at the start, that you've been um, heavily involved in. Um, you whakapapa to Parihaka, uh, as you were chair of the Parihaka Papakainga Trust, um, and so you were part of that team negotiating the apology from the government um, for the illegal and, frankly, atrocious actions that the Crown and its soldiers um, did to Parihaka back in 1881. Um there's there's a whole lot of places that I'll put some links in the show notes and stuff. There's a whole lot of places people can go to learn more about 
um, the story of Parihaka and what happened, so we don't need to go over the whole thing now. Um, but but there are some people who won't have heard of it, some overseas listeners and actually probably some New Zealand listeners as well. So do you just want to give us a really brief, this is what Parihaka is and you know this is the the events that occurred there in, in 1881? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, you know, we had the land wars here in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the musket wars, so they were violent wars, let's put it that mm. way. And so the Crown uh, would negotiate with Māori to um, take over the settlement of lands. Um, if Māori said no, they would then um, invade um, violently. Um and if Māori resisted against that, they would be um, they would be classified as being in rebellion and their entire lands confiscated. So the different ways of being in rebellion were, of course, being um, taking up arms against Her Majesty and her subjects. Uh, so many of the tribes throughout Aotearoa were subjected to that Raupatu um, regime, confiscation regime. Here in Taranaki, uh, our tupuna were... Um, at the time, going through a spiritual journey with, with the Bible, um, with one of the mission schools. Uh, so they were, as you identified earlier, um, identifying the plight of the ancient Israelites and, and, and holding on to that hope and realised that they had to do it a different way in order to achieve freedom for their people so that they would put down their weapons and, and unteach um, violence a violent response, which was very innate in us as a people. So they came up with, they call it non-violent passive resistance in the academic term, mm. um, but you know I call it active resistance because to lay down your weapons mm. and, and a very innate way of doing things required a lot of discipline. So Parihaka became a source of refuge and a place of refuge for people all around the Motu because they were looking for other ways of responding to the violence also, having already lost their lands, mm. many of them. So lots of tribes came to Parihaka, and it was set up as um, a place of peace of resistance for the nation. Well, the Crown didn't like that. So they deemed um, Taranaki, the entire Rohe of Taranaki, to be in rebellion. But prior to that, um, they did invade Parihaka, because one of the forms of passive resistance was to plough the lands and to put up fences overnight when the soldiers were sleeping. And, you know, people call that affirmative action, um, all those mm. different um, type of forms of protest. Uh, but for us, it was us living as if the land was still ours and that it hadn't been confiscated. Yeah. Um, so the ploughing and fencing campaigns of 1879 and 1880 um, led to the justification of the Crown to deem us um, and to be in rebellion uh, and they entered Parihaka um, in November 1881 uh, to forcibly evict and, and remove um, our men um, to send them to prisons down south um, without trial um, and um, for um, crimes that um, um, yeah, were more, for more um, criminal um, consequences than you know, affirmative action, civil consequences, mm. and left the woman behind. Um, the Crown troops in the aftermath um, of the invasion uh, raped our woman, and um, and that results in our generations today. Mm. And then um, there was um, what we call military occupation in Taranaki, certainly the coast in Taranaki for some 20 years um, 
up, uh, up to and, and after 1881. And um, there was separate pieces of legislation created to imprison Tōhuetifiti, to dismantle the, um, our profits, um, to dismantle the leadership. They were 16 months in the South Island without trial. And then there was a pass system. So when Tōhuetifiti and the prisoners came back from South, they... Um, you could only um, get entry into Parihaka um, based on what the past system that, that the Crown had in place at the time. And then the land was confiscated and reserves created that were um, not on the Papakainga. So our people, when they came home, couldn't uh, literally move home. So that's that's a, a little snapshot. Yeah, and, and like I say, I'll put some links in the show notes because there's so much more to... Um, to that whole yeah. to, to that whole story, but man, it just breaks my heart hearing it again. Mm. So you were involved in those negotiations with the government and um, with the crown. What was that process of negotiation like? Because this was different to like treaty oh, land yes. settlements and stuff, wasn't it? It was mm-hmm. it was something else entirely. That's right. So uh the, the first and only reconciliation process of its kind, now understanding that Minister Finlayson, who's key in this in this story, um, did it with his Attorney General hat on, whereas uh, if you're a, a tribe or a claimant and you settle with the Crown, he, he or other ministers would do it with their um, settlement um, portfolio hat on. So it was an out-of-settlement um Arrangement. However, um, I would say that it is still a crown process. <laughs> so you can call it something different, but really the parameters are set by the crown. We work within them in the circumstances, nevertheless. So yeah, Minister Finlayson was critical, and um, yeah, he he's got a new book out, and I would urge you to read that. Maybe you could pop that up. Yeah, um, it's on my Facebook as well. The Etangata link. Yeah, I will. And um, the uh, reconciliation process with Pariaka for him was like the two-way one was one of his most difficult and um, moving for him uh, and particularly the apology that we negotiated I know it sounds a bit um, arbitrary and, and crude to say that but we did have to negotiate the apology and even the historical accounts, which are agreed Crown Māori historical accounts for every treaty settlement in the, in the country, you sit down with Crown historians and the legislators and you argue over every word and the gravity of that word. Yeah. So if your tupuna were killed, which we would say murdered, you're not allowed to use the word murder. You're not even allowed to use the word killed. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a... Not for the faint-hearted wow. process, and and Pariaka was no different. Yeah, that's tough. You would have to say conflict, not war. <sighs> yeah. Mm, even invasion, it's like, mm, you know, skirmish, incident. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's got to be rough when you're on the receiving end, and then mm. the one who's getting ready to do the apologising is the one who holds the power and did hold the yeah. power and that's yeah, why there was an issue in the first place you know um yeah. mm-hmm. gee that's tough yeah it is you you never get desensitized you get stronger um 
at dealing with it. Um, but um, it, it's a battle. You go in with your armour on. You know, the Bible calls us to that. And you use your armour, those parts of your armour, really wisely for different for different battles. Um, and truth is, is, the, um, is, is the part of the armour that you use. If you go in with the truth, um, or the facts, <laughs> then, you know, as Minister Finlayson said, when he received horrible uh, letters from the public after apologising for the rape of Pariaka woman, uh, the facts are the facts. And I remember him saying that to the media in such a, you know, quite an abrasive way. Um, but I appreciated that because, yeah, he was in the battle too because uh, he's representing the Crown and he's got people behind him saying, prove it, prove it, prove it. So I think, again, um, recognising everyone's role in this picture, that not everyone is always the enemy. They, but be smart. Um, understand who um, who you're dealing with and what their role is and and work with that. Yeah, never give up on that opportunity that you have with that person at that point in time to, um, you know, with the Spirit of God, wairua tapu at play, to, to influence the way they see things. It's possible. I've seen it happen. I've seen in the Māori ward, someone who five minutes before they submitted and voted in favour of the Māori ward were your typical racist. And I knew them. I'd, I'd met with them and argued with them before. And it, it was like, oh, well, we know what he's going to say today. He sat there and from hearing the other people and what they had to say, he said, I could see his body, like he was like he was sweating, he was going red, and his body was he was physically affected by whatever it is he was going through. And then at the end, he said, after what I've heard today, after all these years, I changed my mind. I don't see any problem why there shouldn't be a Maori ward in Stratford. It was just you know a little Taranaki wow. township. Yeah. And his mates who were there to oppose the Māori ward were like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and we were like, what is he doing? Yeah, totally. Yeah. But you could see it. Yeah. You could just see the power of what, what the people had to say and the way they said it. They weren't throwing stones at him. They were just saying, this is my experience. This is my town too. We worked at the freezing works together. I know your parents. I know your grandparents, we went to school together. What are we doing? What's the problem? And he changed within a five-minute process. It was the most amazing thing to witness. That's incredible. So your voice, what you bring to a conversation, no matter how you might think um, insignificant it is, there is always the potential to change someone's mind, someone's heart. Yeah. Is it true that... um when you received what Minister Finlayson was going to say at the apology, that you gave it back and told him to rewrite it in his own words? Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah. These are the... <laughs> <laughs> the tactics of the battle, you know. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean, the relationship is two-way, right? Um, statement, response, statement, response conversation 
you don't go in and have a table card, trump card, and go, that's the way it is today, I'm lump it, like it or lump it. So it was a little bit of that. It was like, hang on a minute, hang on, no, no, no. We'll tell you how it's going to be done, and then you will. Um, so, yeah, look, there were times in, in, the, um, in the battle where you chose to do that, and then you reserved your temptation to do that. Yeah. Because you can't do it all the time. You know, you just lose, you lose the integrity of the conversation. But he, he obviously responded to it. Yes, not, not very well. Right. <laughs> um, you know, look, you know, you're being told to go away and start again. is an affront to one's intelligence, to one's intention, to one's just wanting to get this done and yeah. over the line. I've heard that so much in the settlement process. Oh, we need to get this over the line. And I just, oh, every part of me just crumbles inside. Even though I know I too am contributing to this process in a very, you know, as a leader for our people. It's, you know, so don't sort of do the whole, oh, no, that's the crown, that's not me. It's like, no, no, own it. You're, you're a part of it. But um, you don't use that tactic all the time, yeah, because people get sick of that. They're like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> After so many years for your people and, and the lengthy negotiations that you were part of, you know, this day finally came when there was an apology from the Crown um, and apologising for those atrocities that were committed against your people um, and your whenua, you know, in the name of the Crown. What was that like for you on an emotional level that day? Yeah, it's when you're in a position of leadership, you you have to, for an event like that, of the magnitude that it was, you can't deal with your own emotions at the time. Number one, I had to forgive the Crown for its apology before it apologised prior to the day. So for me, that was a spiritual thing, that I couldn't go into that day waiting to hear the apology, see how I feel, then receive it in my heart, decide whether I forgive or not. I did all of that before the day. I had to. For me. And so on the day, I focused on the tupuna, the ancestors, and it was for them. It was all for them. That day, I mean, we're, we're the living remnants, yes, was for our people who were there, but it was for them. I was very clear. And that kept me strong um, in the way that I delivered, the way I stood, um, behaved that day. Afterwards, um, again, it was my journey with uh, my faith that took a whole new turn. Yeah. I basically, at the end of my speech, I used scripture from Isaiah um, about setting the captives free and freeing the brokenhearted and no longer being enslaved and imprisoned. And I knew I could stand on that because our Tupin Tormentafiti used the book of Isaiah. And it wasn't a scripture they ever used, so I was quite deliberate in using something that I saw was, was a benefit for this time. And... Um, I had people coming up to me afterwards going, hey, where'd you get that from? Hey, I didn't know you were a follower of Christ. Hey, I didn't know, you know. And I was like, oh, well, 
cat's out of the bag now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and literally I've gone on another journey after that, um, which has helped me heal because it's a series of um, ongoing <laughs> days of healing, yeah. that, that process. And I even assumed, was hopeful that that one day, that a one-off event would make everything better. Because you kind of do, you know. Oh, cool. Consider it settled and done. Doesn't work like that. Yeah. And that's okay. Um, yeah, but for my faith, uh, yeah, I think I'd be quite messed up. <laughs> and, you know, I, I see the claimants who take these settlements to their conclusion. Well, it's not the conclusion. Um, it is um, beginning of the end. And and Ruakere Hond said that um, on that day, Te Timatanga o Te Whakamutanga. So um, we need to to treat it as such. It's not the end. There's always things, there's always symbols, and we needed that symbolism, we needed that day to to commit ourselves to um, a better future. And, and that's in everything we do. And we're still struggling in those areas, the way we talk to each other when we meet. Um, you know, we've got a long way to go, but we have something to commit to. Hey, we said it's the new dawn. What does that mean? What does that mean? You know, we've sh- we shine the light on the crown and we have to shine it on ourselves. Keep shining it on ourselves. Revealing these things that it no longer um, serve us. And I was in my mid-30s before I ever heard the story of Parihaka. And then, it, I mean, the story just blew my mind that there was this level of, I know, amazing, passive, resistant. You know, there's stories of the children going out to feed the soldiers as they were surrounding Parihaka. And, you know, the amazingly beautiful moments of what, what life can be like uh, when you approach it in a way that isn't about trying to take the power but trying to be graceful and trying to be humble um, even in the face of huge oppression and so you know I've, I discovered this story and first of all it blew my mind that it existed and I'd never heard of it and then I then I heard that you know Gandhi knew these stories um, you know that that was part of what had inspired um, Mahatma Gandhi and in, in, over in India was he knew stories from Parihaka and from other Amazing. places and, and, I'm like, and I'm like how did he know it but <laughs> We never got taught it, you know. Um, and I mean, not to mention that there's a far more significant story to remember on November 5th than Guy Fawkes, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. What is your hope for Aotearoa when it comes to these stories of Pariaka? Yeah, yeah, they, they, it's very simple, um, you know, that they be known yeah. in the way that our people tell the story. Uh, Pariaka are going through a process at the moment of putting education resources around that. So it really is, you know, our way of telling it. Because some of the other reading um, that I'm sure you'll share with people, it's pretty heavy. It's pretty, you know, academic, a lot of it. So hearing that story through our voice, I look forward to our people producing those resources. Visit Pariaka, come, you know, have your own journey. Don't rely on other people, you know, um, commit to that journey yourself. But it is a source of inspiration for the nation. And when you see these stories, you'll understand why. 
you know, um, just because you know the history, it doesn't mean you're complicit. Because I think that's the way people feel, that if I learn it and know it, then I'm going to be blamed for it or blame myself for it. Sure, that's a process of healing non-Māori have to go to when they understand the story and how horrible it is. But, you know, that's that's part of it. Um, you're not culpable. You're just, yeah, aware. Yeah, so... You know, open door every 18th and 19th of every month. We have people from all over the world come. And so I encourage people to come. Because you'll learn a lot more about um, about life than the story of Pariaka. You'll learn more about yourself and where you're at. It's quite a convicting space, you know. Yeah, and, and as I've just said, it's not, it's not your fault. You're not culpable. You're not complicit. But... Um, you confront your own character. Yeah, yeah. And then you start to apply it to your own uh, areas of your life. How do I resolve disputes? How am I stout-hearted? How do I, how do I maintain peace um, in my family? Then you'll start to think of things in your family, in your work life. You're like, right, I know the story now. How can I use those... Um, giftings that they had to contribute to the to parts of my life that need work. <laughs> it's hard work. You'll come away from Parihaka with more work to do. For sure. Mm. We began this um corridor by talking about you being a mama. Um so to finish off, when it comes to growing up Maori, how different or not is the world that your daughter's growing up in um to the one that you grew up in? And I guess, what are your hopes for the Aotearoa that she will know as she grows up? One practical thing is that she has um, always known me with a moko kauai. Uh, she's a whānau, she was gifted to us, and we were had her baby shower scheduled, and um, I've been meaning to get my moko kauai for a long time. My grandmother had one, my mother passed before she could, and Baby shower was coming and I thought, oh, um, I want her to know me as a mother with a moko kauai. I want that to be her reality. And even now she'll grab my face and go, mama, pirangi au moko kauai. I want one of those. You know, so that's her reality. Um, and it was to do with her coming into the world. And for those who don't know what a moko kauai is, this is your cultural facial tattoo as a Māori woman. Yeah. Um, yes. Which is stunning, by the way. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. Um, so that's one thing. Yeah, that's cool. Um, her in the world, um, you know, it's not going to be easy. There'll be other battles that she'll, she'll be a part of. Um, but the artillery and her armour will be um, well polished. <laughs> More so than mine was and, and my grandmother and my grandmother's before me. And, yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm glad that she'll have better support. But neither do I want to sugarcoat it and say that she won't have um, other battles to fight. I'm assuming she wants to get into this stuff. Yeah. Probably shouldn't, yeah. <laughs> She might want to be a carpenter, which is really cool because we need heaps of those. Or she just might want to do other things, but... 
I just want him to be proud of who she is yeah. and not afraid. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving time to talk to us today. Um, thank you for sharing both the, the joy and the pain of what your journey's been like. And yeah, just giving us a bit of insight into some of the ways that you have walked through the the marmai, but also the celebration of who you are as um, Māori of Taranaki. Um, yeah, so thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. Thank you for your mahi, you and your whānau. Tēnā Stories like that of Parihaka are awful and yet beautiful. They are heartbreaking and yet hope-filling. What an inspiration to live a life of non-violent resistance to any authority or system that oppresses those who don't hold the power. And it's so awesome to know that there are people like Puna and many like her who are prepared to follow the lead of the likes of Te Whiti Rongomai and Tohu Kākahi. Puna Thank you for who you are, for what you do. Here is a blessing for you. Puna, may the words of your 14-year-old self stay rooted in your heart, inspiring you on as you now apply your adult wisdom to the passion of youth. Whenever you lose hope that things could change, may you be surprised by a racist who changes his mind, or by a law that comes about more speedily than you expect. But even when you don't see things changing, may you know that your mahi is now laying more foundation for changes that will be seen by others in years to come. May your faith continue to hold you, as your hope is not rooted in battles you may win or lose, but in the one who strives for justice and the reconciliation of all things. May you know that there will always be people in your corner, that you stand on the shoulders of so, so many and that you are surrounded by those who love you and totoko your work. May your daughter grow to be her best self, held in the knowledge that she is loved beyond measure by a mama and a papa who would give their lives for her. And lastly, may you know that you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia, Join me next time when I caught it all with Scotty Reeve. We talk about his years working with the youth of Wellington, his passion for those on the margins of society, living in community, heartbreak and loss in surviving the dark times. And we talk about his book and podcast, 21 Elephants. Until then, me inoi tātou.